This week we are beginning a new series for the fall on the Ten Commandments. And so we're going to be looking specifically at Exodus. They are uh, written again in the book of Deuteronomy, but we're going to be looking at Exodus. And if you'll turn to Exodus 20, again on your sheet um, that has the sermon notes, it is Exodus 20, not Exodus 1, Exodus 20. We'll begin with verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you so much as we come into your presence for uh, your word and specifically your law. As we meditate on the prologue, Uh, This morning, the very first few verses, we want to understand both the basis and the purpose of your law. Along with that, may we see Jesus, who completely fulfilled the law and bore its curse for us, that we may know you. So let us know you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this time. And may we love you more deeply. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So today, again, we're beginning a new series in the Ten Commandments that will take us up to the Advent season this year. And with the beginning of the new series, I want to start off with a question. What comes to your mind when you think about the Ten Commandments? What comes to your mind? Do you look at them as a set of restrictions, a list of thou shalt nots that somehow keep people from doing all that they'd like to do or being as happy as they could be? 
Might they be seen as being attached to a God who is a vindictive judge, keeping His own people bound by narrow parameters while allowing the world to run free and fulfilled and happy? Or perhaps they are seen as old relics of a gone by age in your life. I remember that nice Sunday school lesson on the Ten Commandments when I was ten years old. Or maybe worse than that, we see them as irrelevant. Irrelevant, totally irrelevant. Worthy of being shelved and and forgotten. A recent survey found that only 14% of Americans could even name the Ten Commandments. Kevin DeYoung points out that by comparison, a quarter of all Americans can name the seven ingredients of a Big Mac. That nearly three out of four can name all the three stooges. And more than one in three know all six kids from the Brady Bunch. We have to assume as we think about this particular survey that the sum of the 86% of those who could not name the Ten Commandments were sadly professing Christians. So again, what comes to your mind when you think about the Ten Commandments? As God's people in a messed up world and a mixed up time, it is imperative that we know and understand the Ten Commandments. So today we want to set this series up. We want to look at the the prologue again of the first couple verses here. And we want to look at what is the basis of the commandments. Why do we have them? Why are they important? And what is the purpose of the commandments for our lives? We'll unpack these two points this morning. So let's look first of all at what is the basis of the Ten Commandments. How did they come to us? Um, why are they important to us? So I want you to pretend like you're back in grade school. You know, when your teacher would say, imagine with me if you will, as she read you a story. So imagine God's people. All of God's people that were taken out of Egypt. They're there before this mountain, Mount Sinai. And, and, and it's electric. You can feel the hairs on the back of your neck because there's a holy God there on that mountain. How did they get there? Why are they receiving these Ten Commandments? Well, if you remember back in the book of Genesis, God had promised Adam and Eve and Abraham and the patriarchs that He would give them a land. That He would be their God and they would be His people. And from them, there would be a special blessing that would come. The Messiah that we know now as we look back and we read about it. But it didn't seem that way, did it? It seemed like things were starting slow. Because when you look at the Scripture, what you really find out is that God grows things. And it takes time. It's like like, uh, doing a garden and planting and waiting and watching and seeing. And so when we get to the end of Genesis... There's, a, there's the 12 brothers of, of uh, the sons of Israel. They're brothers. And, and, and they don't like one of their younger brothers named Joseph. And so they sell him into, into slavery. They don't like him. They throw him in a pit. They think they're going to kill him. And one of the brothers talks him out of it. 
they ended up selling him into slavery. So he goes to Egypt, and, and there's a long story about his time there in Egypt and how hard it was. But as the story unfolds, Joseph becomes the right-hand man of the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And he sets up a plan because God has told them there's a famine that's going to come. And the famine is going to be great. And so store up things. Get ready for it because it's coming. I'm going to give you some time of plenty, but then there'll be a time of famine. So he stored up. And he got all those things together. And then the famine hit. And then lo and behold, here comes his brothers. He hasn't seen him in all those years. He looks different now, like way different now. He looks Egyptian, all right? And they don't recognize him, but he's the ruler. And remember the dream that Joseph had? All you are going to bow down before me. Well, here they are. They're bowing down before Joseph. And he wants to test them, so he sends them back with some stuff. And, you know, all that story goes. But if you, as you cut through that story at the end, Joseph is redeemed with his brothers. He sends for his father. His father embraces him. They settle down in the land of Goshen because Joseph had the power to put him in the richest, most fertile part of Egypt. And they begin to have babies. They have babies like crazy. And the people of Israel grow from a few little people to a great, huge horde of people. And there's another Pharaoh years later who comes on the scene and he looks at all these people and he says, we can't have this. They will overturn us. Let's put them into slavery. So they put them into slavery and they made them work. So there, the people of Israel are, they're in slavery 400 years go by. Now, I was, we were, our family was going through this recently, and I asked them the question, how old is America, do you know? It's not that much over 200 years old, is it? So for 400 years, these people were in slavery and God moved to set His people free. So He sent His servant Moses with a message. Pharaoh, you know the song, let my people go, let my people go. But Pharaoh refused. And so God sent ten plagues against Egypt, of which the last and deadliest plague, the Israelites were saved by the blood of the Passover lamb. And so with that last plague, Pharaoh said, get out of here. He sends the Israelites packing. They pack all their stuff up. They begin to move across the desert. They head toward the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind, sends an army after them. And so here comes the army. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Moses stands up and the Lord gives this great big power to... Part the Red Sea. And the people go across the sea. And as it closes behind them, the army dies as the, as the Red Sea closes. And the people land on the other side of the beach. And they lived to sing about it. Along the way, as they traveled then in the wilderness to the land that God had provided them, they began to grumble. And yet, God still saves them from starvation. From dehydration and annihilation. And so here they are at the foot of the mountain. And you can imagine. They've, they've seen the plagues. They've seen the Red Sea parted. They've seen God's um, uh, uh, 
presence come down as Mount Sinai is wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended it upon it in fire. The whole mountain trembles. Uh, the sound of a trumpet is blowing. And, and from the scripture, I can't tell where this trumpet's coming from. It's just like a sound. Maybe it's like the sound of the trumpet blowing when Jesus is going to return. And it gets louder and louder and louder. And then the Lord calls Moses and says, Come. And we read in this text here. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This context reveals some very significant things to us that we need to understand as we approach the Ten Commandments. And there are three foundational aspects that I want us to understand as the, basic of the, as the basics of the Ten Commandments. The first one is this. The commandments reveal God. Notice, God has spoken these commandments. Or more literally in the Hebrew, the ten words. The ten words are spoken. And so they are not the invention of human beings. They are not the product of Moses' great intellect and reason. They are not the result of centuries of meditation upon the moral life by the Israelite people in slavery. These commandments came from God. In this, the commandments show us who He is. They are an expression of the lawgiver's character, his heart, his essence. In other words, the commandments not only show us what God desires of His people, they show us what He is like. They reveal His honor, His worthiness, His majesty, His glory. They tell us who God is. And what matters to Him. And so as you think about a few of the commandments, okay? Think about it this way. When God says, thou shalt not murder, God is not a murderer. When God says, thou shalt not lie, God is not a thief. When it says, thou shalt not covet, God does not covet anything. You see, it reveals who He is. It reveals God to see this. And so, do you see how tightly those commandments are tied to our great God and who He is as a person? As persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. What is the other thing that we see here that they reveal? They reveal His commitment. Ed Clowney says this, The context and the text of the Ten Commandments are unlike any other moral code or legal document. They are written to establish the separate and unique identity of the people with whom God established a covenant agreement. In other words, God saved them. Do you see it? He saved them. They're, they're, they're in slavery. They're in, op they're in oppression. He saved them. He rescued them. Here, He is establishing a covenant agreement for which He is setting them apart for their for His glory. We know from history that Israel um, rebelled against God. And despite of all the warnings given in the law as it continues to unfold, despite all the warnings given by the prophets, 
They turn from God and His ways and they fell upon the covenant curses that the law says will come. Because they did not keep single-minded devotion on the one who had delivered them out of Egypt. However, as Clowney continues, God did not abound His people from, uh, in judgment. He didn't leave them there and abandon them there in judgment. The prophets tell us all throughout the rest of the Old Testament that uh, all that has been ruined and destroyed will be made new. That He will end just injustice and oppression. That He will deliver His people by His own saving righteousness. In this, He will, and, and get the picture here, He will spread a banquet table and gather not only the scattered of Israel, who at that time are scattered all throughout the world because He, he sends them off into captivity. He will not only gather the Israelites together, but He will also be the host of the Gentiles and host them to a great feast on His holy hill. The Lord who restores will renew. The servant of the Lord dispenses the treasure of God's Word. And He sends forth and speaks of truths both new and old. And so when Jesus arrived to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy, He brings a new covenant. A new kingdom. The kingdom of the King. And upon His arrival... He does not abolish the law. He did not come to abolish the law. But what He did was this. He obeyed the law. And He fulfilled it. And not only did He fulfill the law for us on our behalf, but He deepened it. And He revealed God's promised commitment to us. His people. Thirdly, The commandments reveal grace. They reveal grace. The above points out um, that it's easy to misunderstand the commandments. Many believe that God's people attained righteousness or were justified before God by keeping the Ten Commandments and the law of God. For example, if I were to ask you, how is one saved in the Old Testament? Many would say, by keeping the law. But that's not the point of the law. It's not the point of the covenant curses. That is not what happened in the history here of the Exodus. Again, what was going on with the Israelites? They were oppressed. They were enslaved. And God said, I hear your cry. I will save you because I love you. And when you are saved and free and forgiven, I am going to give you a new way to live. So hear me. Salvation isn't the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. There is only one way biblically by which people attain the grace of God. He moves by grace toward people in both the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, it is not keeping the law that saves anyone. It is the 
grace of God expressed in the covenant. The covenant that leads ultimately to Christ and the gospel. So hear that. The law is not meant to save us. So what is its purpose? Well, before we move on to that, I want you to know there are several other foundational aspects to help us understand the basis of the Ten Commandments. And we'll explore those as we move along in these commandments in this series. But these are the key ones because they're in the prologue of the commandments themselves. Hear it again. Know the history here. The people of God saved out of Egypt, rescued. I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. So here we have seen that God has revealed in the commandments. That in the commandments, it is, His commitment is revealed. And not only that, but finally His grace is revealed. So now, let's focus on the purpose. Then what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments for our lives? So with the foundational aspects, and that's important, with the foundational aspects that we we just looked at, with that in mind, in order to understand the purpose of the law, we need to understand the focal point of the Bible. The focal point of the Scriptures. If someone were to ask you, what is the main point of the Bible? Salvation. Redemption of God's people. The great plan of redemption. That is what the Bible is all about. And so if the Bible is all about salvation, which it is, then the commandments themselves fit in that story and have a specific purpose. And that purpose is, we've already determined, not to save us. So what is the purpose then of the law? Why did God give it to Israel? Why has Jesus not abolished it? Why is it still relevant to us today? Let me give you a threefold purpose. First of all, the law reveals our sin. The first purpose of the law is to show people how much they need salvation, how much they need grace. When Paul was talking about the law in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he says these words, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. He was saying, I need the law to understand how sinful I am. So the issue is, is that we think we're pretty good people. If you were to go around and take a mic like some of these guys do in these videos, and you were to say, hey, do you think you're a good person? Almost everybody would say yes. And the reason why that is most of the time is because we don't reflect the law into our lives. We don't reflect God's holiness into our lives. We reflect other people into our lives. So, so it's like, you know, I know I'm a better person than Aaron back there because I've seen him do this, 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 and this. I know I'm better than that guy is. I know I'm better than Hitler. There's got to be at least one person, you know, in this world that I'm better than, you know. So look at it this way. You, you go to a really great dinner party one night and it's you take you and your wife and it's one of those big dog deals with your company or something like that. It's a, it's a titan. You know, a, a tie and coat, a jacket, or whatever the case may be. You're dressed up really nice. Your wife's 
that way. She's dressed up in her flowing dress, and everybody looks really sharp. There's fancy wine and fancy food, and you sit at the table, and you're on. I mean, you're hitting it that night. You're telling jokes, you're laughing, you're enjoying it. You feel like you're connecting with people, you're meeting new people and everything. And then you get up from dinner, you go into the bathroom and you look in the mirror and you're like, oh my goodness, I wonder how long that's been in my teeth. That thing right there, I mean, it's covered my whole tooth. I look like a hillbilly from North Carolina. What in the world? Sorry, North Carolina people. What in the world? I thought I looked great. I thought I was awesome. Till what? Till I looked in the mirror and saw the truth. I looked like a hillbilly. You see, that's what happens when we look into the mirror of the law. It is a mirror. It reveals the human heart. It reveals the tendency we have not to face up to the reality that we're sinful. And so as you're in that bathroom, let me ask you a question. How many of you have actually tried this? I know surely somebody here has, right? You've tried to grab that mirror off the wall, right? And clean your teeth with it. Or maybe you've tried to climb up on the sink and rub your teeth across the mirror to get that dirt off your teeth, right? I don't know of anyone that's done that. Neither do we take the law. Neither do we take the law and clean our hearts with it. The law will not clean our hearts from sin. No, its purpose is to be a mirror to the soul, to shine a light on the truth of our darkened hearts that we may turn to Christ and Christ alone. For His healing power. And you may say, but what about the Old Testament? Jesus wasn't back there. And what I would tell you is is that when the Israelites did not keep the law, they took offerings. They took their offerings to the temple. And God received those offerings. And it was a shadow of the, the one who would to come. Why do you think Jesus is called the Lamb of God? Why do you think John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? So all the Old Testament people are looking forward to the cross. And we're all looking backward to the cross. Jesus is going to pay. Jesus is going to pay. Jesus is going to pay. They didn't quite know who the Messiah was, but the Messiah is coming. He's going to pay. He's going to pay. That's what all the prophets were saying. And we look back and we say, He paid, He paid, He paid. The first purpose of the law is to reveal our sin. The second purpose of the law is to restrain evil. The law also acts in a way to provide protection for people, um, for God's people, but also actually people in the whole world. It restrains evil. Though it can't change our hearts, we've already determined that it cannot change the heart of a person, the law does inhibit lawlessness. By its threat of judgment. In this the law acts like a fence or restraint. Yesterday um, we were at a ball game. We were at yeah, two ball games yesterday I guess. The Silas played in in Arlington. It's a long way down there you know. And, and it, you pretty much just drive the tollway all the way down there. Um, 
we're coming back and we're getting off the Bush Tollway onto the North Texas Tollway. And as we're coming up the ramp there, you know, it all narrows down and your GPS is saying, turn right, turn right, turn right. And so you turn in there and you look and there's a sign there and it's blinking your speed limit. And then you look beside it and you're like, it says 40, but I'm doing like, what, 80 or something right here? This might be a little dangerous. And so we talked about that. We talked about, that's kind of interesting how they have that sign there. Why do you think they have that sign there? Because they've had a bunch of crazy people go up on that overpass and crash. It's the only reason why they would put that sign there. Truck drivers doing 80 miles an hour on that thing crashing. What does that do? It backs up traffic forever. And if you're the guy behind that truck, you're stuck there for days. That's the way it works. You're stuck there for days. And so aren't we glad for guidelines? Aren't we glad that the law is a restraint to evil? That it would say, slow down. We know the terrain here. If you approach this too fast, if you're in your little sports car, you're probably going to be okay. If you're on a motorcycle, you're probably going to be okay. But if you're in a truck, you might crash and shut down traffic for hours. The law is a restraint to evil. They are guidelines that protect us. Now, if you think of this in terms of the Ten Commandments specifically, even for those who do not believe in Christ or the Scriptures, and the Scriptures include the Ten Commandments, the commands, for example, you shall not murder, and you shall not still restrains evil. And we ought to be glad. Not every society in the world has believed in this, I just finished a marvelous book about the Comanches in Texas. It's called The Empire of the Summer Moon. It's gruesome. Those people were warriors. Let me give you one example. They captured a lady. Now, I'm not going to talk about all the other things that they did to her. But one of the things that they did to her is they cut her nose off. And then they took her back to the people that had capped the, 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 uh, the Americans because the Americans were trying to do a treaty. And the, it's, that's a great book because you find out that it, the Comanches aren't like what we think. They had bands, there's no central leader, all these things. So they're making this treaty with this one bunch of Comanches. And they take this woman and they see her coming in and they're like, oh my goodness. And they get worked up about it. And then there's a gunfight and they kill all these Indians off. It's... it's you see man's inhumanity to man. And what the author says is the Comanches thought not one thing about it because it was honorable to bring back a person like that because they had withstood the horrors of what they would put them through. This is the world without the law. When we read, do not murder, do not steal, the law is, especially in the in, in, the, in the civics, in the civil arena and code throughout the Western civilization, the, the law of the Ten Commandments is written there. And much of the world. And we're thankful because it holds back people from being evil as they could. So think about that for just a moment. Now what is the third? We've seen that... that um, 
That the law helps us to see our own sin. It reveals sin to our lives. That's one purpose. It restrains evil. That's the second purpose. And what is the third purpose? It's to direct our paths. The third function of the law is that it shows us how to please the Lord. How we are to live our lives before Him. And, and again, you think about why is the Lord giving them this law? It's to reveal their sin. To show them. That they need Him. That they should turn to Him. It's, it's to restrain evil among even the tribes there. If you look into the book of Judges, you see some of the same stuff that's going on probably in those Comanches within the Israelite community because they've abandoned the Lord in the book of Judges already. It, also, it directs our past though to live our lives before Him to say, Lord, how would you have me live? When I was in seminary, I had a class on ethics for a week in the summer. Uh, the basis of the classes, of course, at seminaries on the Ten Commandments, right? And so there are two things that I remember still distinctly to this day, and I actually reflect on them quite often. And the first one is this. Up until that point, I had never considered that the commandments didn't just forbid sin, but they also reveal duties required in those commandments. So take for example the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. There's a list of things in this command. That we read earlier that you should not do. Don't, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet your, covet your neighbor's donkey. And let's translate that into their fast little car that they have today. Because people don't have donkeys anymore. I mean some of you might. But most people don't have donkeys anymore. But you get the point. There's, it's still relevant. Do not covet. However... Have you ever thought about what coveting, not coveting, requires? This is what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. The Tenth Commandment requires that we be so completely satisfied with our own status in life and have such a proper loving attitude toward others that we are naturally inclined to wish the best for them and all their possessions. That's what it requires of us not to covet. Now I want to ask yourself a question. We're coming into an election year. Do you think that's what those people are going to tell you? Do you think that's what they tell you? No. They want you to break this commandment. They want you to desire their power over you. It's crazy. Think about what these commandments are. And what they're calling us to. That they would be a guide to our lives. And we would take them seriously. Now the second thing that I remember from that seminary class was this. That as I reflected on how God's word. You know, I mean God's commands are, are, are uh, to direct our past, to be a guidance to us. As I reflected, you know, going backwards on the fact that God's law here is a restraint for evil. As I looked at God's law in that week, and as I thought about the Ten Commandments, and as the pastor pressed those particular issues out there, and I began to reflect the law, it again became a mirror to me. Do you see how that works? And I want to be honest with you. I drove away from that class every day worn completely out. 
is, is he would go through these commandments and lay them out and before us. And as he would tell stories of pastors falling away, of, of people that he had to deal with, of, of looking at the commandments as they are, I would see who I was. I would see the reflection of myself in the mirror as an awful sinner. So guess what's going to happen? In the next weeks, as we go through these Ten Commandments, it's going to be hard. We're going to see things that we don't like. We're going to see the reflection of what dirty, rotten scoundrels we really are. But as we gaze in that mirror of the Lord, of the Lord and His law, may it drive us back to Jesus. May it drive us back to who He is, because that's, that's one of the purposes, right? To see that we would see in the mirror and that we would turn back to Him. That we would look to Him for our salvation. That we would not go, Lord, I'm, I, I, I'm not good enough and I can never earn my way and so therefore I just must not be saved. No, 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 no. That we would look at that law and say, I can never earn my salvation. And that's why Jesus did. That's what Jesus did for me. And so as we go through these commandments, hold on tight to the gospel. Hold on tight. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We are the broken, but He is the healer. Jesus Redeemer, mighty to save. Will you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your Word and Your mercy and Your grace. Thank You for the law that pushes us again and again and again back to You. We are not worthy. We will never be worthy unless we are made worthy by Jesus. And so Your Scripture just tells us, look to Jesus and believe. And as we read the Scripture and we feel that pressure, that push for us to to perform, may it never be out of earning our salvation, but may it always be, Lord, I love You and I I want You to strengthen me to do right. I want to please You because I love You. Give me the grace and help me. So that's what we pray, Father. As we come to this table this morning. As we come to this table of grace. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.